I've been doing this series, uh, my podcast, on preaching Christ and the doctrine, how to do doctrinal preaching in a Christ-centered way. And this week and next week, I'm dealing with the doctrine of stewardship, Christ and your money. And I want to talk a little bit about that with you today for the next few minutes. It's a profound topic. Let me start like this. According to Forbes magazine, this latest report, there are now 2,755 billionaires in the world, a list that grew in 2020 despite COVID-19. While the world economy was shattering, 493 new people became billionaires in the world, one every 17 hours. And of those already living in the billions, 86% of them got richer in 2020. John Bezos, Amazon, heads the list. Elon Musk, Telsa, is number two. Bill Gates, Microsoft, is fourth on the list. All of them worth hundreds of billions. Together, the world's billionaires are worth $13 trillion. That's trillion, a million times a million. Try to visualize it this way. If you were to stack $100 bills on top of each other, Benjamins, a trillion $100 bills would reach 631 miles high. That's the kind of money over thousands of people have in the world. They are the heroes of our culture, the obscenely rich. Warren Buffett calls it dynastic wealth. They're icons, they're geniuses to us. We admire them, the wealthy of America, not only for who they are, but mostly for what they have. And we're proud if they're from our group. Right now you're wondering if there are any Wakandans on the group of the richest people. Is T'Challa there? How many women? Any Kardashians? We'll overlook many indiscretion if they have enough money. They can cheat on their wives, cheat on their taxes, oppress their employees, be obnoxious, be bigoted, be atheists, we'll forgive them, we'll admire them, we'll almost worship them if they have enough money. Money eclipses character in the West. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, where do we stand in relationship to money? How does it figure in our value system, in our life goals? in our self-worth. Let me challenge us the next few minutes under this title, Jesus and Your Money, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 43. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. What is Jesus talking about? What kind, of, what kind of strange economics is this? What kind of strange accounting system where this woman gave more than all the others? 
We're interested in how Jesus thinks. Let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we ask you to take this word. Bless it to our hearts. And be with with your spirit. Help us to grow from it. In Jesus' name, amen. The commentators call this a pronouncement story. A brief narrative that culminates in a climatic statement, something revealing God. The setting is the treasury room of the Jerusalem temple. There are 13 trumpet-shaped containers lining the wall. Each container bears the name of a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It has become a place of exhibition instead of worship. Bystanders gather to watch the donors drop their huge deposits. There are murmurs of praise from the crowds as the large gifts fall, but no one notices the widowed woman or pays attention to her meager gift as she walks up to one of those cone-shaped baskets. Almost no one notices her. Almost no one. There was a common belief in the time of Christ that the wealthy were closer to God. Money was counted as a virtue. The rich possessed it because they were spiritually superior to the poor. But as he watches the wealthy give from their abundance, Jesus is not impressed. He was there in the beginning. He knows all people, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. We all started out the same way. In the beginning, we were nothing more than a small conglomeration of minerals, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, trace amounts of iron, manganese, boron, zinc, and a few others. And what transformed these elements into life was not money, not talent, not an advanced degree, not even a denominational affiliation. What turned dust into flesh was the breath of God. And without that breath, we'd all remain what we were, just a handful of dirt. Jesus knows us through and through. We can impress him. Woman walks up, trying to impress nobody. It makes her humble deposit, insignificant by any way of measuring, and then she slips away. She doesn't want to be seen. Jesus calls his disciples and makes this, but here's a pronouncement statement. He makes this pronouncement. This widow gave more to the collection than all the others combined. Mark 12, 40, that's how the message Bible puts it. Than all the others combined, Jesus says. I want to point out two lessons of the kingdom of God that are taught by this story. Two kingdom lessons. The first is this. Jesus watches our giving. He sits with us at our computers and looks with us online as we give. But unlike some others, he doesn't applaud the largest gifts. He's not interested in amounts. Jesus watches for a different reason. We fill in the digits and click the send button. Jesus is watching. He sees what we give and what we hold back. The process is confidential. Nobody knows. It's nobody's business, but it is the business of Jesus. We think of giving as optional, negotiable, something we may choose to do or not choose to do based on our freedom. It's my prerogative. But how can that be for believers when God has commanded it? Jesus is interested in how we give, but not for the reasons that we may think. The divine economy based on stewardship, reminds us that every dollar we possess is sacred 
as the gift of God. Everything we give to God, we merely return to him as that which is already his. So Jesus watches as we give. He watches to see by our giving what we think of him. I got my first job when I was 13 years old. Wasn't even legal to work at 13 in New York City. You had to have working papers. You had to be at least 14. But I got my first job at 13. I was a backer, a box boy at Whitman's grocery store. I'd been taught about the spirituality of money, though I wouldn't have called it by that name. My boss paid in cash. In order to be certain there'd be no mix-up, when I got paid, I would count out my tithe right on the spot and put it into a separate pocket so as not to get it confused. This was not superstition. This was me in my immaturity working out my concept of stewardship. What's God's is God's, be it check, cash, or Bitcoin. Everything belongs to God, and the tenth is his token of it. We misunderstand tithing. The 10% is not God's portion. It's a symbol of his portion, a token of it, reminding us and declaring to him that not just the 10%, but the 100% is his. Everything we have, that's what tithing, tithing is symbolic. The 10% stands for the 100%. Everything we have belongs to him. So Psalm 24, one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. We don't even own ourselves, the Bible says. So that faithful tithe, that generous offering is just another way for us to say, Lord, I'm yours. All I have is yours. Thank you for the privilege of letting me give. But we have to pray to think this way, to live this way. It does not come naturally. It's a spiritual attitude toward material things. No doubt at some point in your education, they made you read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. He had this idea that he called the invisible hand. This is, this is the textbook on capitalism, The Wealth of Nations. He had this idea that he called the invisible hand, which is really just a justification for selfishness. His theory was that by pursuing their own, their own interests, those who have promote the good of the have-nots in all society without even meaning to. Smith says they are led by an invisible hand to an end which was no part of their intention. And their accumulating and consuming extends wealth to the whole community unintentionally so that they end up being generous without even intending to. That's capitalism. We know it doesn't work. That's why you have billions here and then billions upon billions down here. But according to Smith, it's all supposed to trickle down. That's the theory. How drastically different from the biblical view. We have to fight to extricate ourselves from this value system, from this way of thinking, from attachment to our thing. We're bodily creatures. It's natural for us to find security in tangible things. But God claims our material belongings. They come from him. They belong to him. When God gives us something, he does not relinquish his ownership of it. He gives it to us as stewards, as managers. It still belongs to him. So Jesus watches 
He watches our giving to see what we think of him. Talking about giving is what we think of him. You remember the story of the rich young man who threw himself at the feet of Jesus, called Jesus good, and then asked what he must do to enter God's kingdom. He expressed his devotion openly, and he had a sincere heart. He really wanted a word from the Lord. But when Jesus gave him the answer to his question, the Bible says he bowed his head and walked away sad. Remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. Sell all you have. He was attached to his money. Jesus wanted him to become detached. His sense of identity, his sense of security was in his money. Jesus said, sell it all. Get it out of your system. Then he said, give to the poor. Christ didn't want his money. He said, give it away. Jesus wanted his heart and the money was in the way. Then he said, come follow me. What a great opportunity to be one of his disciples, to walk with him, to watch his miracles up close, to listen to him teach, to live with him. But he turned it all down. Why? Money. Because of money. He had too much and his heart was attached to it. So he turned away from Jesus himself. Jesus watches our giving to see what we think of him. He sees our thoughts as they crystallize into a resolution to give. He reads our hearts as the gift transfers from our possession to the custody of the church. He knows our attitude in the aftermath, whether it's regret for having given too much away or entitlement in which we, we expect something in return, or perhaps by grace, perhaps a simple attitude of gratitude that we've been permitted to play a small part in the propagation of the gospel so people can be saved. Jesus watches, he reads, he knows our hearts by the way we give. So the widow places two lepta in the receptacle, a gift equivalent to about one eighth of a cent. It couldn't cover the wage of even a day worker for even 15 minutes. In any world economy, it'd be considered meager. But Jesus sees it differently. Jesus calls it much. In his account of the story, Luke uses the word pension to describe the widow. Literally, it means hand to mouth. She was a woman who lived hand to mouth. Daily by what she got that day. There was no such thing in her life as discretionary funds. A day without income was a day without food. The two lepta made little impact on the church's bottom line, but it deeply impacted her. So Jesus' assessment was that she gave more than any of them because she, out of her poverty, gave all she had. Christ does not judge our gifts on an economic scale, but on a spiritual scale. He judges the gift by the giver, revealing God's value system. It is the giver. That is the real treasure to the Lord, not the gift. God doesn't need our money. He already has all of it. The money we have, we got from him in the first place. God wants our hearts, our hearts through our giving. Generosity is an attitude. Faith is a virtue. Sacrifice is a sacrament. God is interested in what is behind the gift, the quality of heart from which it comes. 
Each one must give, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves what? A cheerful giver. It's the cheer that has value to God. God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't love a million dollars, doesn't love a thousand. God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. That's what has meaning to him. Bless his name. It's one last thing I want us to see about this widow. Bible says she gave all. And you would think if she's living half, hand, uh, hand to mouth and only has two lepta, you'd think she would hold one of them back. Anybody judging would still call this generous. She gave half of all she had. But she only had two and she gave them both. This too is meaningful in the story as a symbol of salvation. It shows the spirituality of money. Stay with me now. Spiritual life comes at the expense of natural life. And the believer must be willing to spend all in order to be saved. No one can serve two masters. That's what her giving meant. Her giving all was a symbol of us giving our all in exchange for what only God can provide for us. Money has spiritual meaning. By her giving, the widow threw herself completely on the promise of the provision of God. She had total faith that God would take care of her. And she relied on nothing else but him. It was this faith that enabled her to give all. And the all is the point, not just financially. The all is the point, not even mainly financially. The all is the point spiritually. It's the symbol of righteousness by faith. The life of surrender in which the believer relies on nothing of his own, of her own, but casts their total faith on God for spiritual survival and for eternal life. It's the giving of all that is our side of the salvation transaction. Remember Hebrews 11? Where the Bible talks about Abraham and his journey of righteousness by faith. Abraham is the, is the icon in the Bible of righteousness by faith. Old Testament and New, the Bible refers to him as the one who symbolized this, this means of salvation. Here's what the Bible says about him. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place he should later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he made his house in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now stay with me. God comes to Abraham with his family, his home, his possessions. God says, Leave here, I got another place for you. The place I'm sending you to will become yours. Go, it'll be your place. Abraham gets up and he goes, not knowing where he's going. If they ask him why, he can't explain it. He's just going. Now, the Bible says he goes. He finds God's place. He lives there in tents. He never builds a home. He lives there in tents. He dies. His son Isaac lives there in tents. He dies. His son Jacob lives there in tents. He dies. They never get the land God promised them. But God didn't break his promise. Why? Because the Bible says Abraham was looking for a different land whose builder and maker is God. He understood the land down here was temporary. It was just a token. 
of what God intended to really give him in eternity. The land God himself built with his own hands. That's why the widow gave all she had. She was a symbol of righteousness by faith, just like Abraham. He left everything on the promise of God. That's how salvation happens. That's how money shows spirituality. Christ watches our giving to see what we think of him. He reads our hearts to see the attitude behind the gift. And he calls for us to give all, holding nothing back to receive the promise that only he can bestow. Bless his name. Bless his name. Let me close with this. I read a story about J.J. Kraft, the head of the Kraft Cheese Corporation. He was known to give his money away. He, he was known to give generous donations, as much as 25% of his total wealth to Christian causes. In his lifetime, he gave millions and millions away. They asked him one day about his giving. He said, the only investment I have ever made that has consistently paid increasing dividends is what I have given to the Lord. Increasing constant dividends. What I've given to the Lord. When we give it away, it's stored in heaven. Multiplied by a million, waiting for us to claim it when we reach that place God has prepared for us. What a blessing. Who wouldn't want that? I know I do, by the grace of God. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. His life that he provided for us and for the opportunity we have to take the material things he loans to us and give them back for his cause to show our love for him, to show our commitment to him. Lord, bless our hearts in our giving, whatever the amount, that it may come from cheerful hearts so that God, so that you can be pleased with us. And that will be enough for us to know our lives have pleased you. Thank you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.